0: In the Bible today, we're going to be reading from Matthew, uh, chapter 11, verses 20 to 30. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, And learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. This is the word of the Lord.
1: It's my privilege to be here with you this morning. Make sure I'm on. I think I am. Yep. All right, so it's my privilege to be with you to open God's word It's especially uh, special for me to be before you because when I started as a freshman at Penn State uh, 15 or 16 years ago, I didn't know who Jesus was. It wasn't until I was in an RUF Bible study, RUF, I didn't know this at the time, was only about a year old, it wasn't until I was in a Bible study that I first really heard who Jesus was and what he did for me and for this world that we walk through. Um, and so it's my privilege to be able to open the word. I, I couldn't imagine being in this place because I didn't even know about this Jesus that I get to now share with students. And I get to share with churches all around this presbytery and beyond. And so um, if you didn't know, this, I am a, a pastor for this presbytery at Penn State. And so this church, along with about 23 others, um, to be exact, uh, support the ministry, um, support me as an evangelist at Penn State teaching students how to love God and how to love their neighbor, and and we learn that through the scriptures. And so, it's my privilege to be with you and open God's word. This morning, we're looking at Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 through 30, and one of the reasons I want to look at this with you is that I enjoy looking at some of the harder sayings in scripture. Um, Some of you are probably sitting here, some of you young folks especially are sitting here thinking, this is is a difficult truth. This is a difficult word to listen to and imagine how this God who we talk about is full of love and full of grace can say things like this. And so I look forward to unpacking that with you. I'm gonna begin with a story. Um, It's from a a woman named Paige Benton Brown, and she's a wonderful uh, Sunday school teacher, um, has her own ministry um, through a church in Nashville, and she was sharing the story not long ago where she had these friends that were headed overseas to an undisclosed place to uh, an orphanage to adopt three brothers. Um, and when her friend walked into this dinner that they were going to have for her friend, when they walked in come bringing their children home that they went overseas to get, when they walked into the celebration, they had four boys with them, not three. And so she asked her friend, where did this other child come from? And so her friend told the story that she and her husband went overseas, went to this orphanage, and their youngest boy that they had adopted, their youngest son, was a bedmate with a 18-month-old boy. And so this 5-year-old was a bedmate of this 18-month-old because they didn't have enough beds for everyone. And they had struck up a friendship and a bond this five-year-old boy and what he considered his brother, this 18-month-old boy. And so when it came time to, to go, the five-year-old wouldn't leave. He said, I'm not going if I have to leave my brother. And so the parents look at each other, and they look at this boy who has this great love for his brother who will not go, will stay in, in a terrible situation because of his love for his brother, and so they scoop them both up, and they take them home. You see, Jesus, in his kindness and his mercy, meets you exactly where you are. He comes to where you are in your desperateness, and he scoops you up, and he takes you home. You see, he loves us too much to, uh, he loves us so much he's going to meet us where we are, but he loves us too much to leave us there. This is the picture God's word paints of God's kindness through Christ to sinners. Our sin keeps us just as desperate as that little boy was in that bed. Our desperate nature comes out in in different ways. Usually it comes out in some kind of hustle, some kind of we've just got to bear down, put our nose to the grindstone and get it done. And then as we do that, we worry that we're not enough. We worry that we're ruining our children. We worry that we're disappointing our parents. We worry that we're failing in so many ways. We worry that they're going to find out what we're really like. And so we work harder and rest less. This passage is God offering rest rather than that grind to have to be enough. So let's take a closer look at this, these cities that felt like they needed to get it done, and they didn't look up, and they didn't see Jesus. And so hope and grace and love never broke into their narrative, and so they never had any rest. And Jesus, through this warning, actually offers them rest instead. And so we're going to take a closer look at how Jesus offers rest, but before that, we're going to look at how he loves us through this warning. And So two points this morning, how God loves us through this warning, and then how he offers us rest instead admittedly this passage is uncomfortable in our time and place I bet it was uncomfortable in that time and place as well what group of people hear this warning and don't think wow maybe he's talking about my neighbor if he's talking about me then I'm going to reject this warning right there's actually very something very good in a warning. And parents you probably get this better than some of the children here. That there's something good when the warning is righteous. And the warning is loving. Because the warning is to save the child from harm. And so this is coming from a father who knows better than his children, the heavenly father, through his son Jesus warning their children don't go the direction you're still going. It's going to end badly for you. When I was a junior in college, I'd become a Christian two years earlier, and I was very excited to get into a relationship with a Christian, and um, so excited that I decided that we were going to be, um, we're going to go move towards marriage. So we get engaged, and um, as the relationship went along, it became evident to other people, but not ourselves, with me and this young woman, that... This was not a great relationship. And so um, we had a few warnings. First, it was our pastor who said, hey, uh, just kind of gently just kind of asking some questions. And I didn't see it at the time for what it was, but it was a warning to say, hey, are you really sure this is what you want to do? Do you want to keep going this direction? And so I had dismissed it. And then a couple weeks later, um, as we were checking out, uh, venues for the marriage and my mom walks out in tears and I walk out as we're checking it out and I said what's wrong and she said I haven't talked to your dad about this but I'm just really worried about this engagement in this marriage and then two weeks later my dad pulls me aside and says hey I haven't talked to your mom about this but and he continues with the same kind of warning It wasn't finally until about three weeks before this wedding was supposed to happen that my brother comes to me, and he just became a Christian through RUF at the same time. Um, And he comes to me, and he presents me a letter. I said, okay, I'll read it later. He's like, no, you're going to read it now. So he takes me to a restaurant, and we sit down, and he makes me read it in front of him. And in my mind, I'm just dismissing all these warnings. He talks about, you know, is this the direction you want to go? and he quotes scripture, and I dismiss it. He's been a Christian for what, two weeks? And then I finally go to my pastor, my campus pastor, and I say, hey, can you believe this? And I hand him the letter, and he's like, yeah, I can. I helped him write it. And that's when it dawned on me, in that moment, God's grace broke in through these challenges. It took that much love From my family members, from my friends. I had somebody in my Bible study pull me aside and ask, is this what I really want to do? And she had everything at stake. And they put everything on the line, relationship with me, in order to do what's good for me. And I realized how much love was in their warning. They saved me from great harm. This passage is not just about an ancient people who Jesus is speaking to, and we, be, we don't belong to them. There are people not dissimilar from us. You see, these are what we're supposed to be God's people that he's warning. If you look at this passage in verse 21... Woe to you, Carazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida. Those are Jewish cities. Those are Israeli cities. Those cities belong to the people of God. And Jesus warns them. And what do these people have in common with us? There are people who worship God and who claim God, and when they sin, they still blame it on God and say it's God, and they explain their sin away to their children I'm blaming God. We do that sometimes, do we not? In particular, this is what the people of God were doing. And I'm not saying we're systematically doing this, but I think we do this in our worst moments, and sometimes not even our worst moments. But in Matthew 23, if you fast forward a few chapters, this is what God says, what Jesus says again. He says, woe to you, Pharisees. He doesn't just say these cities. He says, woe to you, Pharisees in particular. Part of the people, the the leaders in these cities. And he says this. This is why he he speaks a warning to them. These are not innocents. This is what they're doing to the people of God. He says in Matthew 23, they preach but do not practice. He says they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on the people's shoulders. They themselves are not willing to move a finger. And so he speaks this warning. He says, stop putting a burden on the people's back, saying if they want to be close to God, they better work harder. They better do more. They better have more devotions. But guess what he says to these very same people? The same Pharisees that are doing this. He speaks a harsh word because he's, he's warning them against hurting his children, but he loves his children. He doesn't want them to do it anymore, but he loves the Pharisees too, and he says this to them. He says, I long to gather you, my children. Though you have done this, we have done this, he says, I still long to gather you under my wings. The worst thing that God can do in the scriptures is ignore people, is to give them into the passions of their heart. The one thing we long for, society wide, and us included, we long to just do what we want to do. And the worst thing God can do is let you do what you want to do. That's the worst curse in scripture. And so that Jesus is slowing down, not only here, but then again in chapter 23, and he says woe to the Pharisees three times there. He says woe to them one time here. He's slowing down to warn them because he doesn't want them to continue down the path of burdening the people with this message of be more, do more, do better. And it's a burden they can't shoulder. And we'll get to that, but that's why Jesus came to burden it for them. That's the gospel we need to preach to one another, preach to our children, and say to our parents. This group of people in these cities, there was something societal-wide that they were missing. The entire cities were ignoring God. Jesus was doing his biggest miracles. Do you see it in the text? In verse 20, then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. He did such big signs that he said, if these other cities, Tyre and Sidon, if it would have happened to them, they would have repented long ago. And he keeps saying in verse 23, that Capernaum, another Jewish city, Sodom was better than you. They would have noticed these miracles I don't know if Sodom would have or not, if that's what Jesus means, but he means these were great miracles that you shouldn't miss. God is trying to show himself to us through his miracles. God's word is full of miracles that actually happen so that we might see them and believe. And that's why he goes on to say later, children believe like children because children see things and they believe them. They don't ask all these intellectual questions. They don't ask and doubt because they know better, they just believe because they see. We need to be better at seeing God's miracles. We don't just see them in the scriptures, but we see them all around us. There's an author, a uh, children's author named N.D. Wilson, and he wrote this kind of fun book called Notes from a tilt a And this is how he opens his book, talking about seeing God's miracles in everyday life. It's a couple paragraphs long, but it's fun. Uh, this is how he opens. I travel with a carnival where it goes. I go. It's people are my people and it's land, my land. Most of the time I sp- is spent on the tilt world and occasionally in the squirrel cages. I was born into the carnival. You see, I've done all my living, all my sleeping, all my praying, all my growing and throwing up at the carnival. And he said, just to be clear, I live on a near-perfect sphere hurtling through space at around 67,000 miles an hour. That is Mach 86 to pilots. And of course, if that's not enough, this sphere of mine is also spinning while it hurtles to tack on an extra 1,000 miles per hour at the fat parts. Once a month or so, my wife will find me laying on the front lawn with my white knuckles buried in the grass, holding on for dear life, trying not to fly away. Most of the time, I manage to keep my balance despite the speed, so I don't have to hold on with anything more than just my toes. You see, he's realizing the miracle and drawing out the miracle that we're just standing still on this planet that's flying through space and spinning a thousand miles an hour, and we're just standing here. Jesus doesn't want us to miss those things. He doesn't want us to miss what he's doing when a child is born and the miracle that that is. That two cells become a child that becomes an adult that has more children. It's amazing. I wept like a a baby when my first child was born because I just couldn't believe it. It was unbelievable. I know friends who have come to faith because of that. They're atheists and then they had their child and they said, oh my goodness, life is so fragile and this is so amazing. Our bodies convert donuts into energy, right? That's pretty amazing. We're missing these little things every day because we're too amazed with ourselves. We're too worried that we're not doing enough and so we buckle down, we put our nose to the grindstone. Like these cities that kept their faces down and they just went about their work and they just ignored God because they need to just get this task done because that's all that matters. And they missed what was going on in front of them. They missed the obvious, the things that children don't tend to miss. When I try to summarize, this this was the air they breathed. What, what kind of cultural idols did they have? See, we're not immune to what the culture believes and the things they're missing about God. Um, this whole culture missed God. And so how are we missing God altogether as a culture? I think often we think, we're, we think we're too smart for him. I think that we think we're too, we're more loving than God. We read the scriptures and we're embarrassed by certain texts and think that maybe we could soften them a little bit and make them nicer. I think we're too rich. We can cover our lives with comforts and cling to these comforts and ignore the peril of life. And we're all caught up in that. We're caught up in education and money and things that make, think we think make us happy. But Jesus sees us and he sees we're missing out on real joy. And he sees that we're missing out on real comfort. He sees that we're missing out on trusting him and resting. That's how he concludes the story, and that's what we'll turn to now, is that Jesus wants you to rest. Read again verses 25 through 30. This is part of the same story because it says in verse 25, at the same time so at the same time he's declaring these woes to these cities, at the same time Jesus declared, I thank you Father Lord of heaven and earth that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes Father for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father and no one knows the Son except the Father so no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And this is what he offers the cities that he loves. And after he's done all these miracles to gather, capture their attention, he then says, hey, you're missing it. Look up. And instead, look to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest from your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Compare that to what the cities were doing in Matthew twenty three. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on the people. And don't we do that when we we lay all these burdens on people and we judge people and we We can never rest when we're doing that. how do we do this? We do this by be beginning by listening to one another speak of the wonders of Jesus. That's half the reason why we gather. We gather to look to God's word to see God's miracles and see what he's doing in our lives and then we look to one another and we say what is God doing in your life? And when you forget to look up your neighbor your, your friends in church God's people remind you what he's doing. There was this author, this was a really popular book when I was in college a while back, and it was called Blue Like Jazz, Donald Miller. I bet many of you have read it. Um, but he, the, uh, the beginning of the book, this is one of the only things I remember from it, the beginning of the book, he talked about jazz and how he named this book after that because he never understood jazz. It was too chaotic. It was too, it didn't have the right rhythms. He just, he just didn't understand it and didn't appreciate it and, and kind of hated it. Until he met a friend who loved jazz. And he wanted him to love jazz, so he started talking to him about what's going on, and they listened to it together, and he was really passionate about it, and he talked about the different instruments, and when they come in, and why they do this, and why they do that, and he started hearing the beauty through his friend's eyes of jazz. I haven't come around to jazz myself, but I've done this with other things. When friends talk about that, and they're passionate about it, It makes me think, Ooh, I want to do that. I want to check that out. A friend of mine talked about this. Some of you might have visited there near Gatlinburg, Tennessee. It's called Dollywood. Dollywood is a theme park. And all I knew was it was called Dollywood, and that's because Dolly Parton is from Sevierville, Tennessee, where this place is. And she owns and created this Theme park. And I thought a theme park based off of Dolly Parton, I can't think of a place I'd be more miserable. (laughs) It just sounded dumpy and it sounded country and it sounded in all ways I didn't want to go. And but my friend kept talking about how awesome Dollywood was. And he'd take his family there for years and kept talking about it and kept talking about it and he talked about how this one roller coaster has no lights on it. So if you go in the dark at night and you go on it and you, you can't see the next turn and it's terrifying and it's awesome. And he talks about the cinnamon bread that's like half-baked in the middle and it's gooey and delicious. And he said, all right, I'll take you. I'll, we'll go one time. If you don't like it, I'll pay for your, all your tickets. And so we go and we leave and we get season tickets on the way out. And we were season ticket holders for five years after that when we lived in Tennessee. He helped me fall in love with it. He, he told me about the beauties of it. That's what we're doing when we gather. We're talking about the beauties of God to show up when we feel burdened, when death knocks at our door, when we don't know what to do with our kids because we want such good for them and they don't follow our good advice. We need to be people who show up and hear the stories of God and His power and His goodness. We need to be pulled into that story. And when we are, we can be the people that share those stories with one another. What I'm describing here is the church. And it's what God gave us to show us his love, so that we might experience him through one another. B.B. Um, Warfield said this beautiful thing. He's a theologian from uh, Westminster seminary in, in Philadelphia years ago. Actually, he was at Princeton, I think, and then maybe Westminster when they, when they left to start Westminster. Um, he said it this way. To be in Christ, referring to the church, to be in Christ means not just living one life, but a thousand lives. Being bound to a thousand souls by a filament of so loving a savior That their lives become ours. That Jesus binds us together so that we don't just get to live one life and experience our own joys. We get to experience the joys of a thousand others. And they get to experience our joys. And they get to experience the joy of, of even, the privilege of even weeping with one another. And having joy in the midst of sorrow. Our path to freedom isn't working harder. It's not being smarter and figuring it all out. And that's why Jesus says in verse 25, I thank you, Father, for hiding these things from the wise and understanding and revealing them to little children. He's encouraging us to become like little children. To believe Jesus is who he says he is and not overthink it. It's not to become unintellectual, or to check your questions at the door, but it's to actually believe Jesus is doing what he says he's doing. That requires us getting outside of ourselves. That's why God asks us to look up. He's not just doing it for his glory, he's doing it for our good so that we'll forget about ourselves for a moment. Different theologians have called this the, the freedom of self forgetfulness. Have you seen the joy in children when they go play and when they see their friends and they they walk up to somebody new at school and they ask them, hey, would you be my friend? And I think, man, I wish adults were like that. The joy of children to just believe they're loved. To believe when they see things like the resurrection, they're like, well, Jesus is really powerful. Why wouldn't he be, be resurrected? There's an old hymn by William Cowper. Some of you may know it. Um, But the last line is this To see the law by Christ fulfilled, to hear his pardoning voice, changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. Changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. Our lives feel burdensome and heavy because we live as slaves. And we so we wake up in the morning and, and the way this comes out is we ask the question, Ooh, what do I have to do today? What do I have to do today is the question of a slave. God is teaching us that the burden is lighter when we're children. When we wake up and we with anticipation and we say to God, What do we get to do today, Dan? And it's hard. It's not where we are. That's why Jesus gives us these words to encourage us to be like children again. To believe like children again. I'll share this um, to close. Some of you know the name Tim Keller. He's a somewhat famous pastor in New York City, retired now. Um, And he was a, a young pastor once upon a time in rural Virginia. And he had this congregate named John. And he tells a story on himself, so I feel like I'm free to... To tell on him, Um, he had this congregate named John, and he would um, he he didn't like John. He was really annoyed by John. John, um, I don't know if he talked too much or he he didn't talk enough. I don't know what it was, but out of all the people in the congregation, he didn't like John and didn't want to spend time with him. So out of Christian conviction, as a young pastor wanting to do the right thing, he's like, okay, I need to practice love here. Love is not always a feeling; It's, it's often an action, and almost always an action. And so I'm going to love John. I'm going to spend time with him. I'm going to dignify him. Excuse me. So he sits down with John and talks to him. He spends more time with John. He looks for opportunities to, but it's always on the clock, right? He knows he's going to get worn out. And so he does it when he, you know, he limits it to one hour at a time. And and then one time he comes home on his day off. He went out and exercised, came home. And his wife, Kathy, he went up to her and said, hey, this is his day off what do you think about having John and his wife over for dinner tonight? And Kathy goes, Annoying John? Like, you're John that you don't like? And it was, he didn't even realize it was happening, but all of a sudden, he started liking John. He started to understand who he was, and he started to know his story and have mercy on him, and, and compassion and actually empathy, and, and start to identify with him. He saw him as Jesus, started to see him as Jesus did as a precious son. I pray for us. Jesus prays for us, more importantly. Constantly. And one of his prayers for us is that we would learn to live like children and not as slaves. To ask God, what do we get to do today? Let me pray for us for that end.